Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. Today is Friday the 10th of December. I am Jan Fran and on today's episode of the show, can you be fired for taking a medically prescribed substance? Well, what if that substance was a cannabis product? Does that change anything? Because that's what happened to our guest on the show today, 26-year-old Mitchell Rice. Uh, yeah, it was pretty heartbreaking. I had uh, worked hard for my job, so to be told I won't be coming back, yeah, it was very, very upsetting. As you'll hear, Mitchell was fired by his employer, Queensland Rail, for using legally prescribed cannabis products to treat his medical conditions of anxiety and insomnia. In a first-of-its-kind case, he's now taking his former employer all the way to the federal court. It comes down to the social acceptance and the stigma that is attached to medicinal cannabis. With medicinal cannabis now legal in all states and territories right around the country, is workplace policy lagging behind? That's what we're going to talk about a little bit later in the show. But first, our headlines with Katrina Blowers. Hey, Jan. Hi, everyone. Well, Australia's expert vaccine panel has given final approval for COVID jabs to be given to 5 to 11-year-olds. That's right. The federal government confirmed last night that the rollout of the first vaccines for that age group would begin on January 10. And this is after Atagi recommended the Pfizer vaccine for that particular cohort. Yeah, so a couple of changes for this age group. Kids are going to get their two jabs eight weeks apart. Now, that's opposed to three weeks apart for adults. And also, five to 11-year-olds will only receive one-third of an adult dose. That's in line with Atagi's final advice. Yeah, so this means that uh, more than two million children will become eligible for the vaccine under the advice. So if you're listening and you have kids out there, just know that bookings are going to open later this month. So make sure you keep an eye out for that. Now, Atagi uh, has spent the last week considering the Pfizer vaccine for that age group. So you might have heard about it. Uh, We might have talked about it on this show. It was given Mm. provisional approval by the TGA on Sunday. And now it looks like it's got that final approval in the green light. The New South Wales Premier says an increasing number of COVID cases in his state won't have any bearing on plans to further relax restrictions next week. We need to instil confidence, hope and optimism in our people. It is not simply about the case numbers. It is about the hospitalisations and the ICUs. That's Dominic Perrottet speaking there. So New South Wales will, this happens on the 15th of December, it's going to become the first place in Australia to wind back density limits and also to wind back mask mandates and rules that require the showing of vaccination at most venues. How are you feeling about that, Jan? Are you feeling happy or a bit kind of weirded out? I don't think I've been happy for about two years, Katrina. I'll be happy (laughs) (laughs) once I see the back of COVID in its entirety. I mean, life in New South Wales for the most part has sort of returned back to normal in that you Mm. can, you know, leave your home, you can exercise, you can go and see people, you can go to cafes, the kind of day-to-day things that people might do, go to work, that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New South Wales actually recorded 420 cases yesterday. That is the highest mm. figure in almost two months. I think, you know, a lot of Christmas parties are happening, so potential for exposure is pretty high. The number of people in hospital, though, has stayed at around 150 for the past week. Another bit of news that came out, which is super interesting, is that Pfizer says that a third jab of Pfizer 
Pfizer kind of neutralises the Omicron strain. A lot of 40 and 50-year-olds are becoming eligible for that booster shot over Christmas. So it'll be interesting to see what that does to Omicron numbers, particularly in New South Wales. And plans for Barnaby Joyce to meet with US officials uh, to discuss social media and the military alliance have been cancelled because the deputy PM has tested positive for COVID. Barnaby was looking forward to taking up that case in the United States and pressing these issues to ensure that we were holding these big digital and social media companies to account. So I know he's naturally disappointed um, that he now won't be able to do that. That's the PM, Scott Morrison, speaking there. Joyce is isolating in a Washington, D.C. hotel. Uh, He tested positive for the virus after arriving from the UK and he's told media he's only experiencing mild symptoms. I was a bit tired, I suppose. Um, maybe a few slight pains in the leg, but you know, nothing, nothing out of the out of the box. Yeah. So apparently he's uh, he's in this hotel, really hoping to find the cricket on television, <laughs> so that he can watch it because he's not quite sure exactly when he's going to be out of there. Good luck, Barnaby. Joyce's diagnosis has also meant that Australia's ambassador to Washington and two UK politicians had to get tested and isolate because um, they met with Barnaby Joyce. Three gatherings held by UK government bureaucrats last year are under scrutiny and could be passed on to police if it's found they broke COVID rules. Those officials will have access to all relevant records and be able to speak to members of staff. If during the course of the work any evidence emerges of behaviour that is potentially a criminal offence, the matter will be referred to the police. Yeah, that was UK Paymaster General Michael Ellis speaking there. So there's going to be an investigation by a top civil servant that was announced by British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. This was after a video emerged of a member of his staff uh, Mm. joking or, you know, speaking flippantly, I suppose, about a party that was held at the PM's Downing Street residence in December last year. Now, the problem... Well, there's, there's a number of problems with that, but that was yeah. really when the UK was in quite a hairy situation. There were sort of lockdown rules for the country being imposed. So it does kind of flout a lot of those restrictions if indeed it did happen. Yeah, so this wasn't just any member of his staff. This was actually his spokesperson. She was making the remarks during a rehearsal for a press conference. So she knew it was being recorded. So it was all very strange. I think sometimes people overstep the mark in those press conference situations. They all get to know each other. They Mm. think it's a safe space with journalists, but journalists still have to do their job at the end of the day. Johnson has repeatedly said he's been assured there was no party. So that investigation announced overnight will focus on two Downing Street gatherings and one also at the UK Department of Education held over November, December last year. We should say that um, that particular spokesperson uh, has resigned, says that she utterly regrets the comments that she's made, but obviously an ongoing investigation here. There was also a report out this week, Katrina, I don't know if you saw it, and I don't know whether to like high five this person or to tell them what the hell are you doing. But Finland's prime minister, yeah, um, <laughs> has sort of has, has been in trouble a little bit because apparently she she went to a nightclub until four a.m. in the morning and <laughs> left her phone behind. 
Oh my gosh. So she had become a close contact of somebody who had tested positive for COVID. It was one of the ministers in her government. But she says that uh, under Finnish rules, you don't have to isolate. And uh, she's since tested negative a couple of times. But uh, props to her for going out clubbing until that time (laughs) and then being able to lead the country. She's only 36 years old, even though I'm 36 years old and tired all the time. Let's head across the ditch. New Zealand has introduced a really radical plan to ban smoking for the next generation. So legislation which comes into effect next year means those who are aged 14 and under as of today or when those laws pass through will never in their lifetime be legally able to buy tobacco. Yeah, and that's because that legal smoking age will increase every year and the plan is to be able to create this smoke-free generation of Kiwis. Here there's a line in the sand that we are drawing today to say continuing to increase prices will not at this point continue to help people stop smoking. And so now we need to look at the alternatives. That's the New Zealand PM Jacinda Ardern. The New Zealand government has also announced other measures to help phase out smoking, including reducing the legal amount of nicotine in tobacco products to some very low levels and cutting down the shops where cigarettes can be legally sold and increasing funding to addiction services too because there's some concerns that, particularly in low-income areas, people are going to need to purchase more cigarettes Mm. in order to, you know, get get what they're used to getting in, in a regular packet. Yeah, there's also sort of concerns that perhaps this might push cigarettes into the black market and people sort of start buying them illegally. I mean, the plan is, this is very ambitious for New Zealand, to have fewer than 5% of its population smoking by 2025. That's around the corner. Right now, the percentage sits at about 12-ish percent of the population in New Zealand smoke, but that is much higher for uh, its Maori population. That jumps to about a third once you look specifically at that population. So really trying to reduce those numbers. As we were discussing off air, like it's it's not going to touch vaping Yeah, products. exactly. So yeah. for young people, they did a survey of high school kids in New Zealand earlier this year and I think 20,000 kids were surveyed and it found that um, only 3% smoked tobacco products. Mm. 20% of high school kids were vaping. So I think, you know, that's probably the next area that they've got to look at. Yeah, I hear. All right, Kat, you're hopping out. Up next, we're looking at medicinal cannabis in the workplace with just me. Rome wasn't built in a day, but ideally I would like medical cannabis to be treated a lot like the other prescription drugs. They do have a place in medicine. That's Mitchell Rice, who you heard from at the top of the show. For three years, Mitchell worked as a track maintenance operator for Queensland Rail until he says he was dismissed. The reason? Taking prescribed medicinal cannabis. Well, now he's taking Queensland Rail to the federal court in what could very well end up being a landmark case for how workplaces deal with medicinal cannabis use. Mitchell Rice is with us now. Mitchell, tell us what sort of work did you do for Queensland Rail and how did you come to be prescribed medicinal cannabis? Um, so my work um, orientated around points machines. So if you see the old Western movie where they pull the lever and train derails, mm-hmm. those machines are now electronically operated, but we would just do maintenance on those during day shift, during night shift, all hours of the day essentially just doing shift work there. That was essentially one of my 
reasons behind the uh, insomnia that uh, exacerbated the problem. I'd previously been on uh, sleeping medication. Yeah, they weren't really as effective as when I first started getting them and I was starting to get some of the uh, negative side effects, unfortunately. So I decided to look for an alternate and uh, that's when I uh, discovered medical cannabis. And talk us through that. How did that come about? Pretty much just consulted my doctor. I looked into it myself online and I pretty much had ticked all the boxes to be a uh, medical cannabis uh, patient, you know, trying previously trying over-the-counter medications and also other prescription uh, medications and not really getting the desired effect. So I thought I would inquire about the medical cannabis. What happened at work when you started taking medicinal cannabis? Um, They weren't really sure what to do. I think I must have been one of the first medicinal cannabis users there. So they weren't quite sure what to do. I was off work for a little and then I was... um, recommended to go back to my previous medication. Did you bring it up with your workplace? Did you have any sort of meetings or chats and whereby you told them that you were taking medicinal cannabis or did you have to do any any drug testing uh, to be able to do the work that you do? I did declare the medical cannabis when I had it first prescribed. I believe we are meant to be fit for work at all times and uh, we don't really ever want anyone going into a work site under the influence of drugs or anything like that. But um, at the same time, there are provisions for prescribed uh, medication. So, yeah, I was kind of left in the dark as to my situation as a uh, medical cannabis user pretty much at the time. Why have you decided to fight this? I believe we need uh, drug law reform in Queensland, especially in regards to medical cannabis. It's understanding in the workplace. I think it's a healthier alternate to what was previously prescribed to me and yet fair to go to work under the influence of. So, yeah, I mainly want some change because this can help a lot of people. I don't really want this to happen to anyone else, anyone else to fall under my a similar situation. So I don't really want that. And, yeah, I'm pretty much trying to raise awareness for the medical cannabis users around Queensland and around the country. When this happened to you, when you were dismissed, how did that make you feel? Uh, yeah, it was pretty heartbreaking. I had uh, worked hard for my job, so to be told I won't be coming back, yeah, it was very, very upsetting. Rome wasn't built in a day, but ideally I would like medical cannabis to be treated a lot like the other prescription drugs. They do have a place in medicine. That was Mitchell Rice there. Let's go now to Mitchell's lawyer, Jeremy Kennedy, who is from Chamberlain's Law Firm. Jeremy, welcome. You're taking Queensland Rail to the federal court What does the law say with regards to the use of medicinal cannabis in the workplace? The law is unclear at this stage because um, this issue hasn't been litigated as yet. The law really is around work health and safety issues and whether a person in a workplace would be impaired by taking drugs or alcohol, and in this case, prescription cannabis. The substance of the matter that we've commenced for Mr Rice is what's known as a general protections matter under the Fair Work Act on the basis that he has been adversely treated and that is terminated because he has a workplace right or on the basis of a disability. So he suffers from a medical condition for which he takes the medicinal cannabis 
and his employer has discriminated against him in terminating his employment for using that substance in the workplace without proper cause. So it's perfectly legal to use medicinal marijuana and go to work pending that you stay under a certain amount. Have I got that right? Uh, No, not quite. The law in relation to work health and safety says that employers have to have a safe workplace. And as a result of that, employers have developed drug and alcohol policies that deal with issues of impairment in the workplace. So there's no specific law that says you, for alcohol, for instance, have to be under 0.05 or under 0.02, or with other prescription medication, whether you have to be at a certain level. But what the law does say, if you are impaired in the workplace, then you're putting yourself at risk and others at risk. So the question comes down to one of impairment. So there's no specific legislation dealing with THC levels, which is the accepted measure of cannabis Mm. in a person's body. There's no law specifically that deals with that. It's based upon employers' policies and how they develop those policies. And that's what we'll be arguing in this case, that employer policies in Australia need to reflect the current status of the law, and that is that persons who use medicinal cannabis can still work in the workplace as long as they're not impaired by taking that drug. The same with any other prescription medication that can be prescribed to workers that could affect their ability to operate machinery, etc. Because Queensland Rail, we did reach out to them. What they've said to us is that, and I'm, I'm just going to quote from a statement, it, it's quite brief, but they say safety is Queensland Rail's number one priority with all employees and contractors required to be fit for work at all times while on duty. This includes having a blood alcohol concentration reading of zero and a level of other drugs under the target concentration level as outlined in the Australian standard. You were saying there that it is up to workplaces to set their own policies for what they believe is a safe standard in their workplace. Is it not the right of Queensland Rail to set that policy and stick by it? Well, I think it comes down to the social acceptance and the stigma that is attached to medicinal cannabis. THC levels is a measure of cannabis in a person's system But the key question is, is a person impaired if they actually have THC in their system? The accepted medical data is that for regular users of cannabis, whether it's medicinal or otherwise, that their impairment levels may disappear totally within two hours of taking the substance. But Mitchell's medical advice and treating doctor when he prescribed the medication, said that if he took the drug 10 hours before starting a shift, there would be no impairment whatsoever. But of course, when Mitchell was tested, there was a level of THC showing in his system. So you're not necessarily arguing about the standard, you're arguing about what level of impairment that brings to a person and whether that impedes them in doing their job and doing it safely. Correct. In terms of Mitchell's job in particular, he was working in sort of track work maintenance, which I imagine would involve heavy machinery and quite a sort of semi-dangerous workplace to be in for that reason. Is there an argument to be made that, I mean, you always hear this stuff around, if you take certain medications, you shouldn't be operating heavy machinery. We've taken that as a given for a lot of medications. Why can that not be the case for medicinal cannabis as well? Well, it can. The question is, If a person is taking other types of medication, how long are they going to be impaired for? 
as is the same question with medicinal marijuana or cannabis. And there were other drugs that uh, Mr. Bryce could have been prescribed by his doctor, which wouldn't have shown up on testing, but would have impaired him to work in the workplace if he'd taken them hours before or a, a day before. They would show up in his system and there could be a level of impairment. So again, it comes down to this question of whether he was impaired in any way and whether he could do his job safely for his own safety and for the safety of others in the workplace. You talked about stigma earlier, Jeremy. Can you elaborate on that for us? Why do you think there is a stigma around the use of medicinal cannabis? Well, I think it's a social issue and that a lot of people in society don't agree with the use of medicinal cannabis, but also that it's taking a bit of time, I think, for employers particularly to catch up with what's now accepted medication and has been approved by various states and governments across Australia. And I think that employers' policies need to catch up to that eventually. And hopefully this case for Mr Rice will bring that to the forefront. If there's a precedent set, then employers will know that they have to give different considerations to people that are using these substances. That was Jeremy Kennedy from Chamberlain's law firm there. And Mitchell has started up a GoFundMe page. He's trying to fund for a barrister. If you want to check it out, we'll leave the details in the show notes of this episode. A very interesting case. As we said, could be a bit of a bit of a landmark decision. We'll have to wait and see. That is it for our show today. That is it for the briefing Monday to Friday this week, but the weekend briefing kicks on. Jamila, what have you got for us? I am really pumped that this weekend I have got to chat with Luke McGregor, who you probably know as one of Australia's best love comedians. You might have seen him on Rosehaven or Lukewarm Sex or Utopia. He is that gorgeous, spunky guy with the red hair who always seems deeply incredibly uncomfortably awkward. We had the most rollicking chat. We talked about everything from friendship to high school to economics, strangely, to being vulnerable on TV and working with your best friend. Well, sounds like a very riveting conversation. I love that guy. He is gorgeous and he is spunky, so make sure you tune in for that one. Hey, also, we've got some very exciting news for you before we let you go. We're going to be launching a newsletter in the new year. That's right. In case you just haven't got enough of us, there's more. It'll be a chance for you to find out you know, a bit more information, opinion pieces, trivia. It won't just be a repeat of the podcast, by the way. It's going to be a whole new product from the briefing team. We're really excited about that. Things that you want to read, you know, just without the doom scroll, just straight into your inbox. So we'd love to hear from you. and um, We'd love to hear about what you'd like to see in your briefing newsletter. Please do get in touch with us. So many of you do, and we absolutely love it. Just head on over to our Instagram, um, and the link there is in the bio. There's a sign-up form for you. Well, thanks for listening for another week. Catch you soon. Listener.